always already listeners, it's John here. Welcome to this episode of the show. We're uh, doing something a little bit different today. So, first of all, we're on spring break. Second of all, uh, some of us are scattered about at conferences. Um, so, we're bringing you a very special episode with someone you might remember from always already's past. And we are in a messianic, queer, temporal moment, bringing her back to the podcast. Uh, my good friend, and your good friend, Joanna Tice, has joined us for the episode. Hi, Joanna. Hi, guys. I'm so excited to be here and to be experiencing this messianic temporal moment um, from Las Vegas. Yeah, so we should say that it's 4 a.m. and Joanna and I have been gambling since 3 p.m. yesterday. That's not true. <laughs> yeah. I but we are in Las Vegas. We are in Las Vegas. We're here for a conference. We're at the Western Political Science Association conference. And we're hiding far, far from the Strip because you can only take so much of that. That's true. Um, I haven't been to Las Vegas since I was like 13, and there was good reason for that, apparently. Yeah, it just keeps getting worse every time I come. Yeah. Um, so Las Vegas aside, we're holed up in hotel rooms that we're sharing with other previous guests and affiliates of the Always Already podcast. I'm wearing um, a robe. <laughs> that's an important fact to know. Um, I'm sadly wearing normal clothes, so that's less fun. I should have dressed up for the show. Um, so we're here today to talk about Joanna's dissertation project, um, which I've had the definitely a privilege, and I use that word purposely, uh, to read a lot of due to the writing group that Joanna and Rachel and I are in together. So the current working title of the project is Power of the Spirit, the Political Thought of Contemporary Evangelicalism. So Joanna, I was hoping that perhaps before we kind of delve into some of the details, you could give the listeners a bit of the overview of the project and perhaps do so in two ways. First, maybe just an overview of the project itself. And secondly, you know, anything you might want to say about kind of the impetus or motivation uh, behind you doing the project. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I realized recently is that all the work I've done in political theory up to this point um, has focused on actually theorizing um, the, the thought of groups and individuals that aren't generally considered to be uh, intellectual or theoretical or to have theoretical content to their thought or to even have what we in academia would think of as thought. Um, so, for example, a previous project I did was on um, the undocumented immigrant discourse in the U.S. and looking at the ways um, both that the undocumented uh, think about their own positioning and also about the way that the U.S. Uh, journalistic discourse uh, positions them and uses, you know, alien versus undocumented uh, other terms like that, and how that affects, you know, their legal status. Um, and so now I'm doing a very different project about evangelicalism, but I realize that the, the similarity here is that uh, I'm really interested in the thought of groups that do not in any way consider themselves um, thinkers or theorizers, and in fact, um, bringing my own training in political thought and political theory to bear on um, the way that they conceptualize themselves, the identities they have, 
the role they see themselves having in society, um, and sort of transforming that thought, hopefully in a respectful manner, uh, into what looks like an analysis of political thought or political theory. Um, so the over overview of the project I'm doing now is uh, essentially I'm looking at the devotional texts of a number of prominent evangelical thinkers. Uh, the four thinkers I'm working with currently are Rick Warren, primarily his book The Purpose Driven Life. Um, I'm looking at a devotional author named Sarah Young, uh, whose work Jesus Calling is probably not known to the audience of the podcast, but is extremely popular um, in evangelical circles. I'm also looking at the work of Rob Bell and uh, of Sarah Bessie, who has published a book entitled Jesus Feminist. Uh, so basically there's a span of age and a span of uh, sort of the way that the ministry of these four people exists in the world. Rick Warren is a very conventional megachurch pastor, if there's such thing as a conventional megachurch pastor. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Where I, I grew up in the conservative evangelical suburbs of Denver, Colorado, where there are lots of megachurch pastors. So we, I think I'm willing to say there may be conventional megachurch pastors. All right. Well, that's good to know. Um, so... So, Rick Warren, conventional megachurch pastor. Uh, Sarah Young is actually a missionary to Japanese evangelicals in Australia. So, that's a very different story. Um, she also does, I think, some counseling of evangelicals, uh, in addition to the writing of this, these devotional books. Uh, Rob Bell was a church pastor up until, I think, 2013, and then he left his church and has since been doing uh, a lot of blogging, making of videos, publishing of additional books. He's now appeared um, with Oprah doing some sort of... I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he's been doing... He's basically refers to himself as a Christian teacher, hmm. um, but he does a lot of very different from a megachurch pastor role, you know, type things. <coughs> um, and the fourth, Sarah Bessie, is uh, a blogger and as well as the author of this book, Jesus Feminist. So maybe, Joanna, I mean, when we talk about kind of the motivations and you're saying that you want to think through evangelicalism as political thought, um, and I know, again, from talking to you a lot and reading a fair amount of your work, that part of the argument here is that political thought or political theory or whatever we want to call it, and I don't have much stake in what we call it, um, other than to, to interchange terms promiscuously, uh, that one of the problems you think or that you identify is that it's not taken seriously as political thought. And so... Given the fact that there has been this, you know, maybe ever-increasing critique of kind of grand historical narratives of secularism or of some assumption that secularism has, you know, itself purged, you know, religious elements or something like that, 
you're given also, you know, as you and I talked about, you know, kind of the more recent interest in Islamic political thought. So if we take a look at those two trends, and one might think then that, all right, so thus perhaps there'd be some sort of, like, political theoretical investigation or analysis or engagement with evangelicalism, but yet that's not the case. Why do you think that is? Um, I think there's a very easy answer to that question, okay. and that is that... Um, Given the U.S. military engagements in the Middle East in the last 15 years um, and beyond those years, obviously, um, it's sort of, for lack of a better word, sexy and politically correct to do work on Islamic political thought as a sort of, like, way to assuage our guilt that we're doing this horrible thing in the Middle East. Like, okay, well, at least these scholars are taking seriously um, Islam as political thought. And in the U.S., where actually evangelicals and certainly Christians are in the majority, Mm -hmm. uh, evangelicals represent about 26% of the U.S. population, and people in the U.S. who are of a Christian orientation believe in God and believe that they receive messages from God on a regular basis make up about 80% of the U.S. population. So given those astounding figures, uh, I think that actually secular academics are in sort of a defensive pose against that um, vast majority in the U.S. And so uh, just sort of strategically, politically, it doesn't make sense for them to be taking evangelicalism seriously, Um, but my interest in doing so arises out of the fact that, you know, in sort of this post-culture war era, um, a lot of the problems, political problems that we can easily identify in 2015, um, racial tensions, uh, police state terror behavior, um, you know, gender issues that are still getting papered over uh, are often blamed on evangelicals as being conflated with conservatives. Um, And I think it's important to know what the ontological beliefs of this group are to take that seriously, um, given that this group is such a large percentage of the U.S. population, um, and if we're going to make progress in these other areas, it's necessary to know, to identify what the beliefs of this group are. I'm not going to say understand. I don't think that ultimately this project is about understanding, and actually, John, that's something you've helped me to realize. Um, It's not about understanding. It's about... um, identifying, uh, well, it's about analyzing the content of these devotional texts as not a private affair that people um, do in their Bible study groups or in their own homes or in their own churches, and that it doesn't go beyond that. These beliefs and the, the d- dissertation is broken up in, right now into three parts about evangelical time or temporality. Um, The second part is about evangelical uh, being or sort of ontology. 
Uh, the third section is about evangelical uh, selfhood, the development of the evangelical subject, uh, and very similarly to how Saba Mahmoud argues that um, the development of the believing subject is simultaneously the development of a political subject. Um, I think that you can't separate out, especially, you know, with my own orientation coming from feminist political thought, that you can't separate out people's ethical, personal, emotional beliefs and the formation of their, their subjecthood, um, which occurs, you know, in their devotional practices, in their ethical formation, and then say that that's somehow separate from their political self. That's really interesting. I mean, it actually makes me think of something that I hadn't realized with your project, but one of the, and, and your project does a lot of cool things, the audience should be aware of that, but one of the cool things that it does that I just now realized is that in the way you just explained, you know, the importance of studying this as something that goes beyond just private devotion, right, you're working, I think, to break down what are traditionally gender divides between the public and the private. Right, and this is you know partly something also that Mahmoud talks about in her work, and that we probably discussed when you were on the podcast, you know, and over the last summer or whatever. Um, so it seems to me that part of what you're doing then is to break down that divide. That is, you know, probably my own tendency until I started thinking about these things more deeply by engaging your work. That situates religion as something that's privatized, you know, or or that I didn't make the connection between like, all right, obviously I can see you know, what I understand is, like, the rise of the Christian right or something like that, and its continued effects on U.S. politics, okay. You know, but I didn't necessarily go and make that linkage between, like, private devotional practices or the link from private devotional practices to, like, a theory of belief or a theory, or an ontological theory or a theory of time or something. So I think the fact that you're working across that public-private divide, when it's easy for, you know, easy for someone like me to actually reify that separation in the way that I thought, or perhaps more accurately didn't think, about evangelicalism is operating. But now I'm just rambling a little, Joanna, so I want to actually ask you a question, because this is about you and not me. I love your ramblings. <laughs> That's apparently so does the audience to this podcast, if any of you are still listening. Um, so I know one of the main arguments you're making in the paper, Joanna, is that there's been a shift in American evangelicalism, you can talk about the time frame and how you want to uh, kind of periodize that. Maybe you can perhaps give us a bit of the overview of what that shift is to give us um, a sense of the arguments here. And then maybe perhaps we can talk about some of the specific aspects to talk about time and subjecthood and so on. Absolutely. So, and this sort of relates back to your previous point about the public and private. Um, so obviously, as people are aware, uh, the Christian right in the 1970s through the 1990s um, came to have an extremely vigorous politics. They were very engaged uh, at all levels of U.S. government. They were, um, you know, trumping, trumping? That's not the right sure. word. Sure. They were, they were... Trumpeting? <laughs> sure, trumpeting. They were, um, you know, actually talking about voting in their, from their, uh, in their churches, they were trying to actually affect the way that their, um, the people in their pews were voting, and, you know, 
various figures actually came to have sort of a political stage um, as, you know, people who were ministers or former ministers or televangelists actually coming to be talking regularly about political issues um, and people were quoting them in newspapers, etc., etc. So, um, what happened around 9-11 was that and I, I don't know, actually, it's interesting, I hadn't thought about whether there's any specific connection to 9-11, but uh, basically the evangelical population started to become sort of disinterested in continuing down this overtly political path. There was a book that came out in 1998 um, by two former pastors who basically talked about how being overtly engaged in politics was distracting American evangelicals from their devotional practices, from their spiritual practices, and actually um, thinking that they could change politics or insert themselves in politics was really a defiance of God's will. And so the discourse of evangelicalism shifted a lot, and you see in the devotional texts a real attempt to uh, avoid political topics. And so actually the texts that I'm looking at, which, all, which have all been written since the year 2000, uh, are all sort of in this strain of what a lot of people have referred to as sort of quietistic or apolitical, uh, to the point where... Um, I mean, certainly not Sarah Bessie's work of Jesus Feminist, although even in her even in her work, there's a real attempt to sort of like find a moderate path, to find a third way, all of these sorts of um, the desire to do the work that she's doing without, you know, engaging political parties or without really trying to be in the, again, the public sphere mm -hmm. in an overt way. Um, so I'm going to jump in, though, then, because I think they're going kind of, I mean, when I first started hearing you talk about this project, I think around that claim in particular, two kind of questions that were harder for me as someone who, like, you know, who doesn't think about evangelicalism and only kind of has, you know, the, like, leftist academic view on evangelicalism, kind of two then challenges that appear to me well, you know, when I started thinking about your project. The first is that, you know, is that someone who's not paying attention, who's not, who's not reading Christian devotional te texts, right. right, wants to say, Why not, all right, I'm, I'm, there's not enough time in the day, what can <laughs> I say? You know, I want to say, okay, but I still see plenty of religiously inflected abortion restrictions, Absolutely. I see, you know, like, re religious freedom popping up as, like, this discourse to, you know, deny rights to LGBT people or, so, or you know, the post-Hobby Lobby decision, that kind of stuff. So on the one hand, I have, or on one hand, there's kind of that working. So I'm wondering if perhaps you could talk about, uh, you know, perhaps the disconnect one might say, see between you know, a common perception of continuing evangelically religious-inflected uh, political action on the right in the U.S., and the shift in the devotional text towards a more potentially quietistic mode. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that it's dangerous to make claims that there's 
an obvious connection between those things just because um, I'm not going to, you know, psychoanalyze the, the writers of these texts. I don't know their every move. Sure. I don't know what their political engagements are. Um, with perhaps the exception, I mean, so, for example, Rick Warren obviously is reported in the news a lot as having various political engagements, including, you know, going into Uganda and yeah. um, his sort of AIDS work and his environmental work. Uh, and then you have, on the other hand, Sarah Young, who is, like, completely not in the public sphere at all. Like, she has a Twitter account, but it's clearly run by um, her publisher. I don't think she has any, any hand in writing it. Um, she has done, like, one or two interviews in the last ten years. Um, so anyways, to, to respond to your question a little bit more... Uh, I think that you can't really make a connection between these two things uh, necessarily. All I can say is that uh, there, I agree with you. I guess you, maybe the connection's not, is that I, I phrased that incorrectly, but how do those two things, how can we say both of these two things are happening? Right, the idea that there's still conservative political action um, coming out of evangelical, out of the evangelical movement, while, you know, I'm claiming that there's a uh, sort of quietism in, yeah. in the devotional work um, and in the movement in general. I mean, I think there's a lot of ambivalence in the evangelical movement. You know, you see certain statistics like 60% of evangelical youth support gay marriage. Mm -hmm. um, so there's generational gaps, there's ambivalence um, on the part of individuals who, you know, for example, have had a member of their family come out and have had to um, confront LGBT issues uh, personally, and some of those people have, you know, engaged with it personally and then not talked about it at church. Others have um, actually started, you know, evangelical groups to support other parents that are going through this or whatever else. Um, so I think there's there's obviously still a lot of anti-abortion work coming out of the evangelical movement, um, but there's these these shifts and these ambivalences that um, make it a, a necessary moment of analysis. Sure. Um, and then in terms of the devotionals, while there is sort of an apolitical and quietistic uh, or a, a quietism that other people have labeled as, you know, the, the movement is becoming um, less overtly politically engaged. I would also argue that actually what's happening in the devotionals is sort of a um, regrouping of the mm. movement and trying to help people solidify their evangelical identities um, in this moment that is a little a little less politically engaged and, you know, regroup for the future um, and what the content of that future holds, obviously, I'm in no position to say, right. but um, I think that there's a lot of potential for the evangelical movement in the future to be greatly empowered by 
the regrouping that's going on now, meaning that, you know, they could, there could be another resurgence of evangelical political power in a conservative or in a, you know, not conservative direction um, going forward. Uh, you know, because as I said, in terms of the generational divide, there's a lot of young evangelicals that are getting very interested in um, moving off in more liberal or progressive directions. Um, and there's always been a very strong, although small, um, group of progressive evangelicals um, associated with like Tim Wallace and the Sojourners, those types of groups. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say that we're suddenly going to see a huge, you know, progressive evangelical movement emerge, but I think that there's shifting going on and that shifting, um, and the repositioning of thought that's taking place really needs to be, um, paid attention to. Right. And then we may, I may come back later to kind of explore some of these tensions, but I'm really interested in kind of getting some of the overview of some of the specific concepts and beliefs and practices um, that you see emerging from these Christian devotional texts. So I think maybe one way to think about it is first, and you know, this is this is taken from Joanna. This isn't like my brilliant insight into her project. This is like one of the ways she talks about her project. But <clears throat> you're identifying a number of kind of central tensions, it seems to me, or tensions that you think are productive or creative. Um, and I'll have you talk about that in a second. So maybe we can first by thinking, start by thinking about um, evangelical temporality. And perhaps you can kind of talk about the tension or tensions that are at play um, in evangelical temporality, and then perhaps what the implications of those tensions might be. Yeah, absolutely. Except that you've used all my words, so now I have nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, so... See, this is, this is the benefit to me of interviewing someone whose project I know pretty well is that, you know, I can ask, like, questions using the smarter things that they've already come up with well, I don't uh, know about to make that. myself look smarter. <laughs> um, he doesn't need it, folks. So, the, the thing that I've noticed across my project, and I wasn't sure how to engage it at first, was the fact that as many you know, quote-unquote secular observers might think about evangelicalism. Good quote-unquote there, Joanne. Thanks. Um, there's a lot of contradictions and um, sort of logical problems within really basic beliefs of evangelicalism. Um, later I'll turn to talking about, you know, for example, the... Uh, the tension between claims of predestination and free will in the same texts. The idea that, for example, in Rick Warren's text, um, you can choose your career and your spouse, but your mission from God is already planned out. Or the idea that you make a choice to convert to evangelical or to convert to Christianity, um, to choose Christ, quote unquote. Um, but that that's already sort of preordained in the path that God has laid out for you. So, like, clearly both those things can exist at the same time, um, at least in the way that, you know, most academics would think about that narrative. Um, 
but the thing is that across all the texts that I look at, um, these contradictions just are side by side in the same text by the same author, and they just, um, so eventually I realized they must be serving some function. Mm -hmm. And you, you asked me specifically about the tensions in uh, evangelical temporality. Well, maybe even before we get to that, yeah. I mean, do you think that there's some kind of general effects, uh, effects or some general effects of these tensions on yeah, a kind of general yeah. level before maybe we get into the specifics? Absolutely. So I think the way that these tensions, just to give you a sense of, they could be like perfection versus imperfection, which appear side by side in the same text, or predestination and free will, or eternity and the retroactivity of being mm -hmm. reborn. Um, these tensions in my reading uh, actually serve um, their, their productive tensions and their creative tensions in the sense that. Um, they respond to human anxieties about um, about these topics. Like, am I created by by God and I'm perfect, or um, have I fallen and I'm sinful and I'm flawed? And um, so, what these tensions, you know, so they respond to anxieties that exist in human experience, but they also provide space within the discourse of the movement to um, both maintain the orthodoxies and the fundamentalism that exists in the movement, while also sort of attuning those orthodoxies to the contemporary moment. So, you know, one thing that's sort of often said in, the pop, in, in sort of popular discourse in response to fundamental religion is that it's like from the past, <coughs> it's from the past or right. it's backwards. Um, but like, obviously it, that's sort of a misnomer if these, uh, if these movements continue to grow, continue to flourish, continue to attract new members. Um, and so by deploying these tensions in their texts, it sort of provides the space where the authors and evangelicalism in general can um, sort of like wiggle room in a way. Yeah. It's like you have these literal readings of the Bible, um, but if uh, a literal understanding of the Bible is in tension with the Bible as a historical text, um, as is the case of, across several of these authors, um, then you can sort of respond to skepticism from new converts or people that have been evangelical their whole lives, while also sort of maintaining the orthodoxy of the of the literal biblical interpretation. That's, I mean, that's really interesting, and I, it's, it's wiggle room, I think that's right, but it's also, you know, a space for something like a dialogic exchange, right? So that then it seems to me that it's not just about, you know, what God says or what these devotional authors are saying, right? But that there's room then for the believing subjects, believing practicing subjects, right? To kind of, you know, articulate that into their lives 
so that in that tension, right, it's not just unidirectional, right, but there's some ability to feedback and claim some, you know, some agency in, the, in what the construction of evangelicalism is and does. And that seems to me thus maybe also related to what you were saying earlier about this being perhaps a period of regrouping, right, that if there's these tensions, then in the working out of those tensions, right, perhaps that's a moment of regrouping. Exactly. And I think one of the things that a lot of, again, quote-unquote secular observers don't realize about evangelicalism, which is made really apparent in uh, Tanya Lerman's work, um, is that actually most evangelicals have experienced intense moments of skepticism at least one point in their lives, and most experience that on a daily, weekly you know, regular, regular level. Um, and so it's actually really important to devotional texts to provide a narrative that, um, that speaks to the believer and the skeptic at the same time, assuming not only that that's like a skeptic who's outside of the movement that's like someone else, but that the believer and the skeptic are in the same body. So there's another, so that like, the believer-skeptic is itself another, perhaps, creative tension, then. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, then, what I think about, and one of the things that I really like about your project, and that I find really kind of both ethically and conceptually important, is the attention that you pay to everyday practice, and to belief is not just something that's ideational, um, or ideational in, like, a disembodied Cartesian sense, even, which would be even worse. Um, <laughs> so I was wondering if you could maybe speak to the importance of the body and the importance of paying attention to everyday practice when it comes to thinking about evangelicalism. Yes, thanks. Great question. So in the same way that, you know, a lot of anthropologists, again, like um, Talal Asad and... Mahmoud have um, made practice, bodily practice, central to their analysis of religion. And I don't necessarily go as far as they do. I mm -hmm. think that um, analyzing theology and texts and um, discourse is equally important. But um, I think that only analyzing theology is to set aside the spaces and the times when evangelicals are reaffirming their beliefs, um, which can never be only an intellectual process or only a bodily process, um, because those things aren't separate. So you know, if you open a devotional text and you have a, an emotional reaction to it, um, that is just as just as significant, if not more significant, as you know, a intellectual battle that's going on in a seminary school over a particular, you know, biblical passage or mm -hmm. over a particular, you know, tenet of the faith, um, and so. I, I kind of feel like the reason I chose devotional texts is because they sort of exist in a middle ground between mm -hmm. those two extremes. Um, it's not 
you know, a, a strictly bodily practice in the sense that I'm like looking at the way people, you know, kneel in church or, um, and it's not a strictly intellectual practice in the sense that it's not, um, it's not theological writing. It's actually talking to evangelicals about their everyday lives and what they should be doing in their thought and practice um, to, which again are sort of one and the same, uh, to deepen their connection with God and their relationship with God. Um, and so it's sort of a, it's sort of an ideal zone mm -hmm. in, in religion to analyze because it's, um, it attends to both of the areas that I think that I'm committed to, um, interpreting. Right. And so I've, con <coughs> excuse me, I've continued to promise, uh, the audience we talk about time and in a very, I don't know what the right, and there's a temporal joke here, but I don't know what, quite what it is, so I'll just throw it out there. But I keep deferring uh, the, the moment of that. So perhaps you can maybe tell us a little bit about this tension that you see between temporal beliefs about eternity and about <laughs> retroactivity. And then perhaps especially, you know, picking up on what you just said, what that means then for the believing subjects, for that tension to be in operation. Great. So, one of the first things that I noticed about these devotional texts is how much they relied on time and how much the sort of evangelical narrative was temporal. So, you have, on one hand, um, the narrative very much relies on the idea of an eternal divine being and the idea that... Um, the human soul is eternal. Uh, on the other hand, you have a moment of creation, which is in the past, and you have a um, you have a sort of life plan that's been set out by that divine being, and you have a moment of death, which is um, you know the moment of transition from the finite universe into the infinite universe. But on the other hand more central to evangelicalism than to any other Christian faith, you have these, the ability of humans to retroactively mitigate or respond to problems in their past. So you have the rebirth moment, you have the, the born again moment of evangelicals where, you know, the classic story is, you know, an alcoholic or a drug addict or a sex addict um, realizes that they've been going down the quote-unquote wrong path and they find Jesus and they choose Jesus and um, then they are you know, cleansed of their previous sins. And so it struck me that there's this really interesting tension between this narrative of eternity and this, this temporality that's sort of linear, um, from creation through, you know, Jesus's life and death, um, and the resurrection 
and today and the creation of um, evangelical individuals today. And then there's also this really weird temporality going on between, you know, is was Jesus a historical figure in the past? Is he a figure that exists with us now in this room? I mean, a lot of evangelical devotionals talk about, you know, having coffee with Jesus, like setting the table to sit down and, you know, have an embodied experience with uh, the Messiah in the room at the same time as you. Um, but on the other hand, you're an infinite soul and God is infinite and you also have the ability to turn back the clock um, on the sins you've committed earlier in your life and that can happen multiple times. So there's this humongous reliance in evangelical devotionals on these uh, very contradictory um, views of time these, these alternate temporalities. Um, and so, you know, very much as we talked about the tension earlier in the, in the episode, uh, I think that this is a productive tension that, um, allows these different realities to exist in the same devotional practice. And, you know, eternity sort of takes on the badge of, um, this, long-standing tradition that has, you know, various heroes, the, you know, main ones being biblical characters, centrally Jesus, also, you know, Martin Luther and other, you know, Protestant figures that um, came before the contemporary evangelical movement. Um, but on the other hand, you have the ability to um, have sort of a spontaneous reaction to events in real time and to political events in real time to sort of um, change the movement. So on one hand you have eternity which is um, solid and linear and um, progressing forward at an even pace and then on the other hand you have this retroactivity which can wrinkle um, or disrupt that linear progression. Um, and that disruption allows for um, modifications of the faith to, again, attune it to contemporary events, um, but to simultaneously maintain those right. orthodoxies. And we should offer a spoiler alert slash teaser, Joanna, that if you're interested in hearing more Ooh. about evangelical time, and how it relates, and is perhaps doing similar things to time, is messianic time and For queer example, time. You know, things that are related. Yeah. You might want to come to the American Political Science Association annual meeting in September, where Joanna and I combine our forces to write a paper together. Evangelical time, messianic time, queer time. What more could you want in life? Are they the same? Are they totally different? We're is gonna, anyone going to ask us any questions make any sense? Or are we just going to blow their minds totally and they're not going to... Find out, coming to September. Um, so, Joanna, I know one of the things that are parts of the project that you're working on right now is thinking about the kinds of subjectivities or selves <coughs> that arise out of evangelical belief and practice. So I'm wondering perhaps if you can maybe talk a little bit 
about the role of these creative tensions in producing certain kinds of subjects. Absolutely. It's only fair that John would ask me a question about something I'm working on this week. <laughs> haven't worked out at all yet. <laughs> you know, just keep me on my toes. Um, so, as I began to shift my analysis towards the creation of the evangelical subject, the production of the evangelical subject, um, I was looking at the ways that devotional writers talk about um, the shift from sort of being to action, like what you should be doing on a regular basis, what sort of goals you should make for your life, you know, what, how you should spend time with God, but also how you should... Um, how you can bring evangelicalism into your daily life, in your career, in your relationships, etc., etc. And again, there's there's a tension. One of the first tensions that emerges is um, sort of a tension which has existed in a lot of um, Western discussions of the human subject, which is sort of whether essence or action comes first and which one matters more and how how do you define an individual do you define an individual by their actions or by their essence and of course for evangelicalism this is are you the perfect creation of god um no matter what you do or are you only you know exhibiting sort of divine characteristics when you um act in a quote-unquote Christian manner. Um, and there was also, as I mentioned earlier, this tension between being divinely perfect or being sinfully fallen. And all of these things just repeat themselves and intermingle all the time in these devotional texts. Um, I had also mentioned the tension between predestination and free will. Um, so all of these tensions go into the making of the evangelical subject in the sense that, um, it is by nature an ambivalent subject mm -hmm. that, uh, you believe that you have free will and you believe that you, you know, chose Jesus of your own free will, but, um, that was sort of inevitable anyways, because the divine path for you was, was to choose Jesus. Um, now, of course, that is problematic in a number of, theor number of theoretical ways, um, but not necessarily so politically problematic on its face. Um, now, it gets quite a bit darker when you look at tensions between like, is God's predestined path a universal one, or is it only for a few chosen people? Mm. And this is obviously a huge theme in Christianity, um, that is papered over more than any other single tension. Huh. It's almost never talked about anymore, because obviously, again with evangelical concerns of being open and not being, you know, only a white movement, which it certainly is not. There's massive numbers of 
um, Black, Asian, Latino, evangelical churches. Um, but there's a real concern on the part of white evangelicals, which are the people primarily whose work I'm looking at um, so far. There's a concern about portraying themselves as inclusive, and yet um, it's impossible to escape the biblical narrative that they are sort of bound to, that there are some that are chosen by God and there are some that are not. Um, and ultimately, this is an argument that's very difficult to fit into mm-hmm. sort of the contemporary moment of American political culture and thought um, and the, the, the strain there to be inclusive, to portray themselves as inclusive um, while maintaining that not everyone is chosen is... Uh, at the very least, I can say it's extremely entertaining to try to, to watch them work with that tension. Right. So maybe to conclude a little bit, I kind of want to go back to something you were talking about earlier. Um, and going back to this question about shifts in evangelicalism that you're thinking about. And so there's an interesting moment earlier in the interview where you caught yourself um, and you were talking about, you know, <clears throat> this reading of more contemporary evangelical evangelicalism is quietistic, and you started to say, you know, and this is apolitical, but then you call yourself and said, others say it's apolitical. So that seems to me to say that you want to argue that quietism doesn't necessarily mean apolitical. So... I do. um, I wonder how it is that I knew that. Uh, (laughs) That's what you thought. So how then does quietism still translate into political. I mean, it seems to me that part of it is just a perhaps broader conception of what counts as political. Um, but maybe you talk specifically then about what it is that's still political about evangelical thinking about ontology, time, belief, subjectivity, practice, and so on. It's um, both quietistic and political. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of this is influenced by Mac- Mahmoud's idea that um, if the ethical, emotional formation of the subject is produced in a, in a religious space, if you know a, a kid growing up is influenced by biblical narratives as they're sort of like deciding who they're going to be and who they're what they're going to identify as. Um, on a very simple level, that's obviously going to influence their political personage in the, in the future. Um, but I think also, um, it's again attempting to rupture that idea that religion is a, is a private act, that Mm -hmm. religion is this, um, cloistered area that can be separated off, um, and just because people aren't like voting from the pews um, or talking, you know, doing political activism in their churches, uh, doesn't mean that the discourse that's occurring 
is not political. And in fact, I would argue in some ways it's, it's more, more basic um, to the formation of the political subject because if, you, um, if you're told to vote a certain way, that's uh, a sort of superficial engagement between religion and politics. If you are told you are a certain kind of person and you exist in a certain type of universe and you move across a certain type of time yeah. and you, um, like your entire being is, is sculpted and shaped by your, you know, and I wanted to say for a moment your encounter with religion, but it's not an encounter with religion if you're like basting in a of religious juices all the time. Which, which I hope that metaphor makes it into a, a dissertation. <laughs> um, you know, and, and in the same way that all of us are, to repeat it, basting in, you know, juices of pop culture sure. um, or, you know, the political discourse in new media or whatever else, um, if you are part of this evangelical worldview, it means you are reading, you are most likely reading evangelical periodicals. Your, your news is filtered through um, evangelical mediums. Um, but most importantly, your conception of who you are and what the reality of the universe looks like is developed through evangelical uh, texts and because of that I, I just don't see how um, you know in the same way that we can't separate um, other aspects of intersectional you know intersectional identities you can't sure. separate um, an individual from their gender positioning or their sexual positioning or their class positioning um, you know, religion is one of the one of the um, identities that is associated with intersectionality, and yet um, it's so often, especially in the Christian case, um, sort of removed because it's inconvenient to the um, you know sort of political goals of uh, progressive secular scholars. Certainly not everyone. Sure. There are obvious examples, people that are doing fantastic work um, on evangelicalism while being, you know, immersed in a progressive perspective. But I think it's it's um, very difficult for a lot of um, a lot of progressives. Uh, for example, I've gone into a professor's office and told them about my project. And specifically about the you know, this one book I'm working on about Jesus feminism, and the only sort of response that that professor could come up with was, uh, "Well, those two things don't mix. Like that's impossible for someone to be an evangelical or believe in believe in um, in Jesus and be a feminist at the same time." Um, and so. There's just sort of like a mental block for sure. a lot of people, uh, and I don't necessarily think that the feminism that 
um, Sarah Bassey sort of promotes this Jesus feminism is well certainly not something I would advocate for personally and I, I, I'm pretty skeptical about whether or not it would sort of fit under the umbrella of feminism but um, that's something to talk about not right. something to just say well that can't exist it's impossible but, well it does exist this book has been published and read and yeah so um that's a good place to end except not really ending um because we have some other more fun questions some tailored to you and some we just like to ask all our guests oh good god so first question joanna tice you get to give one book one any book to uh to bessie young bell and warren and they're they have to read it you get to give them one book what is that book Oh my god. Have other people's brains exploded when you ask them that question? I haven't question? asked them that question. It's, see, I try to do like one question that's specific okay. to the party, then okay. we get the more general questions okay. we like to ask everybody when we remember to actually ask them. Lucky you, I remember to ask them. So can I cheat? Because <laughs> I'm gonna not I'm gonna not answer your question. I'm going to deflect <laughs> by saying the the pro. I mean, actually, the significance of my project is that there's no book on my shelf from you know political theory that would make any sense to okay. the four devotional people that okay. I'm that I'm studying because we live in such different worldviews. Hmm. And also, I mean, not to mention you sort of need for for a lot of my sort of favored favorite text you need sort of a training in political theory so you know not to like say they're dumb but just to say like this is we're living in different universes right um yeah okay fair enough so i guess they'd have to like come to my class or something deal uh what's a recent movie that you've seen that you suggest our listeners uh partake in doesn't have to be like a recent movie but it may have been something that's 50 years old but you just saw right right um, so the first thing coming to mind is actually the Imitation Game, which came out this year, I think, or last year, um, which, if you watch, spoiler alert, if you watch to the end <laughs> of the... I think it's historical fiction, right? <laughs> well, right, but, so if you watch to the end of the movie... Or fictionalized um, biopic, whatever. Yeah, they're ta- they, they do that little thing where they, like talk about what happened to the characters in the future, and um, the main character, who's... Alan Turing. Yes, thank you. That one. Alan Turing. um, Which they hinted at throughout the movie, but didn't actually deal with till the end, um, was gay, and was given the option, when this was discovered by the British government, to have hormone therapy... Or to be jailed. And he chose hormone therapy to, you know, have his bodily freedom. Um, But then that ended up being so unpleasant that he committed suicide after only a couple of years. And the number of British men, I think mostly men, who were subjected to this hormone therapy is just astounding. I had no idea. Um, And the idea that the British government would take this individual who had basically, like, saved, you know, their idea of the free world and 
like, do something that would delude the very mind that had saved them, again, for lack of a better word, um, was just, uh, mind-blowing. Not that I had no concept of these things occurring, but, um, I didn't know the specific British history, um, and I think it was just a really powerful use of what is otherwise a pretty conventional blockbuster film. Okay. Um, to sort of hopefully use it as a as a platform to yeah. make people more aware of this history. All right. Um, final, final question, yeah. Joanna. You get to go time traveling Woo! with any one thinker, theorist, philosopher, whatever we want to call them. Who, where do you go, and who do you take with you? So, I would... Uh, pack a picnic basket, and um, can I take more than one person? No, oh you, you already cheated on one question, that's Joanna. Fair, that's you don't fair. get to do it on this okay. one too. So my picnic basket and Judy Butler um, go with because clearly, if you're time traveling, you can call her Judy. Obviously, okay. Because I travel to the future where we're besties, um, and uh, so. But we're not actually traveling to the future. We're, tra- we're traveling back to the past. Um, where are we going, though? Yeah, what time period? I don't know. Where? Okay. Because I feel like the past is pretty crappy a lot of the times. Like, I'm a little afraid to go to the past. Okay. You can go to the future. <laughs> yeah, the future, but... Okay. I think so... you'd be the first person, actually, to answer going to the future. Everyone goes All to right, the well, past. Alright, well, in that case, I'm obviously doing it, because... Do you have a year in mind you'd like to go to? Oh... Um, let's go to 2070. Okay. So, uh, Florida's gone. Uh, California's landmass is 20% less. Um, but you you and Butler get to hang out at least. So, there's that. There is that. Um, I just want to see what happens, yeah. guys. I want to see if all this shit gets sorted out. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Joanna, um, and as you may be able to tell listeners, about the last 20 minutes or so, there's like this giant party going on right outside the hotel window, which Joanna and I are going to now go join. Not really. We're really no. going to be mad at no. it as it prevents us from sleeping tonight. I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> And then John and I are going to go get some dinner on the one part in the one part of Vegas that is tolerable. Tolerable, yeah. So if you're in Vegas, I would very much recommend going to downtown um, and avoiding the loud, obnoxious area, and instead going to some very nice little restaurants and shops. Yes, we had some great Thai food last night. Fifth and Sixth Street. Um, on Fremont? On Fremont in right. downtown Vegas. Look at that. Restaurant tips, movie tips, all of it from the Always Already podcast. Joanna, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And appreciate like getting to hear about your project just in a different form than I already get to do, which is a real pleasure for me. So thank you. Well, the pleasure is all mine. All right, Always Already listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the episode. And uh, we'll be back with you with another episode at some point soon. Thanks. Bye. Hooray.
Thank you for joining us on the Always Ready Podcast, which is created by John McMahon, Rachel Brown, and B. Altman. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us, text you like us to discuss, or advice questions to answer at alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our RSS feed. Until next time, bye.